Welcome to No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covered Garden. Uh, my name is Anna Dzinski, not Dan Schreiber, and I am sitting here with James Harkin, Andrew Hunter-Murray and Anne Miller. Once again, we've gathered around the microphones with our four favourite facts from the last seven days, and in no particular order, here we go. Starting with my fact, which is cockroaches can carry 900 times their own body weight on their backs. Amazing. <laughs> it's impressive, isn't it? So what is 900 times bigger than a cockroach? 900 cockroaches. Oh, that's yes. wow. yeah. Cockroach firefighters must be very good indeed. <laughs> I'll take everyone. Oh, I've just got everything from your house. Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've got the whole house. Oh, no, it's still on fire. <laughs> I worked out that that would mean that I would be able to carry the biggest dinosaur that ever walked the earth, which is Argentinosaurus. Wow. So if I was a cockroach, that would look really impressive. Yeah. If you were a cockroach, as in as a human, you would be able to. <laughs> if I was a human-sized cockroach and the laws of physics didn't really apply to me, but just this one particular fact applied to me, <laughs> then I'd be able to carry that. Di- oh, and if dinosaurs still existed, <laughs> there are a lot of big ifs in there, but it's still impressive. So yeah, this is. I read this in an article which was published by the Sci- Science, the journal Science. The article was actually written by someone called Elizabeth Panisi. Uh, this is a report on cockroaches and how they're basically impossible to squash. And it looked into why. So they're extremely flexible and extremely hard and really good at lifting stuff. And so they, they worked that out, obviously, by how you'd think they did, by putting heavier and heavier stuff Ooh. on cockroaches' backs and seeing at what point wow. they crushed. But that, we, we haven't said there are 4,500 species of cockroach. <laughs> no, so we haven't. This, so is this only one species oh, of cockroach oh, that the can strong do one. the super this, strong stuff? This was an American cockroach. Oh, yeah. Uh, famously been strong. been to the gym, yeah. Yeah, exactly. A jock. Uh, <laughs> a jockroach. <laughs> I read a thing about how we had this image of cockroaches as sort of, you know, being very hardy and surviving everything, but it really varies. There are... 64 rays can kill 93% of German cockroaches, which is 10 times more than humans can take, but like way, way, way less than a fruit fly can take. So a fruit fly can survive more radiation. Than... Oh, radiation. Yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah. Because so probably some cockroaches are really hardy and some aren't. But we sort of think of cockroaches as this one uniform thing. Mm. And actually, they're very different individuals. <laughs> yeah. I think that's good. That's good speaking up for cockroaches. Yeah. They're not just horrible things. <laughs> They're each very special in their own way. <laughs> Do you know what happens to elderly cockroaches? Oh, I read about this experiment and it's amazing. It's great. <laughs> well, they get doddery. Um, so they, the scientists looked at elderly cockroaches right. and they, they found that their joints seize up and they have trouble walking up hills oh, yeah. and they spend less time moving around. They move more slowly when they do move around. Do they develop slightly racist views <laughs> about, the other, about the other kinds of cockroaches. <laughs> but so, so basically they, they, they did this experiment. They was, you know, tried to make them walk up slopes and things. They only found one method which could rejuvenate an elderly cockroach and make it you know, um, this was testing whether a particular species could run off after being nudged. Right. And the best way to ensure that elderly cockroaches can run off after being nudged is to decapitate them. Oh. But it's a bit of an extreme... Yeah, yeah I'd rather be doddery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so in this experiment that I got this fact from, they were mainly actually looking at how cockroaches can squeeze through such tiny spaces. So the American cockroach, for instance, which is about nine millimetres tall, can squeeze through a slit that's three millimetres high. 
And so they looked at exactly wow. how they do that. And it's really cool. They, they'll come across this little hole. And first of all, they inspect it with their antenna. So, you know, to feel around, feel how small it is. Then they jam their head through and then they squeeze their front legs through after it. So they're really pushing their body down, squeezing their front legs through. And then they sort of drag the rest of the body behind them. And their back legs are really splayed out. So when you look at it, they're completely flat. Their back legs wow. are splayed out, but sort of still pushing them. And it takes them one second to do that. Wow. And they're much better than any animal squeezing except an octopus, I think, which can squeeze itself quite small as well. But, but see, faster. that's terrifying. So what they're also really good at is biting. So they can bite with five times more relative strength than humans can, which is terrifying. And yeah. cockroaches will eat everything, including other cockroaches and humans. And the thing about they some sailors... Cockroaches don't eat humans. They do. No, they it's, don't. But not all of you, because they're only small, but if they were big enough. So sailors on ships, apparently, wear, some sailors wear gloves because cockroaches will sleep up, sneak up in the night and eat their fingernails. Really? Yeah. That's quite good. No. Yeah. Don't need to take nails, is it? No, day one is your fingernails, day three it's your eyes. <laughs> so here's something I have in common with cockroaches. Um, they don't like mornings uh, in as much as they're literally unable to form any new memories at the start of the day. <laughs> <laughs> so if you teach them something at the start of the day, they'll just forget it. Wow. And if you teach them in the yeah. afternoon, then they'll remember it. Is there a reason, do they think, behind that? or They just go out really late. Yeah, um, just, we just like to stay up late. <laughs> you and your cockroach friends. <laughs> I'm glad you can speak on behalf of the cockroaches now, James. Yeah. It's, it's um, but they don't, they don't like the light, do they? So I wonder if it's something to do with that. Maybe. Yeah. Because their name, Blatidea, in Latin means insect that shuns the light. Does it? Mm-hmm. And also the creepy ones might eat your fingernails, but I'm sure when I started at QI, it was a brilliant fact that it was if... So we don't like, like the idea of cockroaches, but they don't like the idea of us. So some of them, if they touch a human, will run away and clean themselves. Mm. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> human. That's weird because they love touching, don't they? I think we've said this before, but they um, that's why they like being in really tiny spaces and they mm. like crawling into your ears. And that's because <laughs> uh, they really like touching the edges of things. And this comes in handy for a guy called Stephen Kutcher, who is Hollywood's bug artist. So he's got this super cool job if anyone is he's using He's got insects. a super cool job, but his brother Aston's doing a lot better isn't he? <laughs> in Hollywood. Well, it depends what you mean by better. But can you imagine those Christmas dinners of the Kutcher household? <laughs> what have you been doing? Well, Stephen gets to say, I'm at the very top of my field, which I don't think can be. (laughs) We don't need to get into the Ashton Kutcher debate here. Uh, But anyway, so Stephen sort of recruits bugs for films like Spider-Man. Recruits. (laughs) Are you around? Are you free? Are you? Leaves his fingernails out and hopes they come to him. Yeah, it's like that. And then he trains them up. And so he did this interview for NPR where he was talking about a film called Race the Sun. And what he had to do was he had to get a cockroach to emerge from a shoe, walk onto a bag of Cheetos, turn left, and then walk through some Cheetos that had spilled out of it and then stop on a magazine. So he had to get a cockroach to do all of this without any prompting. And he did it by folding the bag of Cheetos in a certain way. And because they really like touching Mm. things, he just folded it in a way that they'd follow the folds around. Wow. And it steered it exactly. That's so clever. Wow. Yeah, that's I would just guy. glue a magnet to the underside of the cockroach and then move that around <laughs> under the filming surface. I would do it in post. <laughs> Hollywood secrets from the No Six Thing is a Fish team. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. really cool. Yeah, you don't get that in Heat magazine, no. do you? Okay. Um, in Russia, hmm. in 2008, hmm. they wanted to find some cockroaches in Moscow to send into space. They needed 54 Mm-hmm. Uh, and it they should them- have recruited my friend Stephen Kutcher. <laughs> 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 uh, 
<laughs> well, it took them three months to find 54 cockroaches oh, in Russia. Gosh. And then everyone was like, oh my God, what's happened to all our cockroaches in Russia? And there was a big worry about it. Uh, people blamed like cell tower radiation or GM food mm-hmm. or probably foreigners or, you know, like people blame whatever they blame. Um, and it, we don't really know what happened. Uh, but then around 2011, they started coming back. And then in the early 2010s, there was a huge plague of cockroaches in Moscow. Wow. So they kind of just disappeared and then they all came back. And what it might have been is maybe they started using some pesticide, the government did, and then it killed them all. But then they got used to it. And then when they got used mm. to it, they really came back with a vengeance. God, wow. Wow. It's a big holiday, big cockroach holiday. <laughs> That's because whenever I go on holiday, there's always cockroaches in the room. There you go. James, you That's... have to start improving your accommodation on holiday. <laughs> whenever. <laughs> oh, I did find one thing I liked, which is that uh, as female cockroaches get older, they gradually lower their standards of what they think is acceptable in a mate. <laughs> Yeah, I think we can all feel for that. But the male cockroaches... We can all hope for that. (laughs) (laughs) Males are completely unable to assess females' age or assess their reproductive fitness. They're just willing to mate at all times. But females um, start out with quite high standards and then as time goes by, they broaden their standards... Lower and lower, really. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're, all, they're all cockroaches yeah. you're dating, though. So. <laughs> they don't move on to more attractive animals <laughs> <No>. like lions. <laughs> that would be amazing, wouldn't it, if all animals were dating all other animals? <laughs> um, well, they are very sexual, aren't they? The only thing they like more than food, I think, is sex, cockroaches. Wow. And they will actually, I think it's the males are very sexual. The females actually aren't as into sex. And so if a male is starving to death and it's got a bit of food in front of him, but then you spray some female pheromone 16 feet away, it will run to the female pheromone and die of starvation. Because really? it wants sex more than food. Yeah. Wow. Um, do you guys know that cockroach milk is the most nutritious substance on earth or one of the most nutritious substances Maybe on earth? Maybe he's running to the woman cockroach to get some milk rather than for sex you're right he must have read the same article that i did <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so i didn't know this they've, they've milked the pacific beetle cockroach and they found that it has four times more calories than cow's milk and yeah it's full of protein and fats and sugars and it's this cockroach is the only cockroach that gives birth to live young and then it sort of pumps out this special milk for its babies yeah. and it's really cool it looks really glittery because it's got protein crystals in it wow yeah. right well I'll look for a tiny tiny bottle yeah. of milk in the soup market next time I'm in. It's not milk per se, is it? It's something slightly different to milk, I think. Yeah, I, I don't think know why. But... Secretions. <clears throat> yeah. <it> doesn't... <laughs> Lovely. Like, what I mean is when you're in the supermarket, you won't be able to call it cockroach milk like you can't these days they're stopping people from calling things almond milk aren't they oh. if it doesn't contain lactose or something you're saying the dairy industry might get annoyed if I start selling my cockroach milk I think milk. they will I think you might have to call it cockroach secretion like Anne suggests mm. and I don't want to buy that mm. but I'm, I'm only one person so no I, I do think we need to work on the branding <laughs> <laughs> okay let's move on to our next facts and that is Anne's facts my fact is that the first British travellers aboard the Orient Express were advised to bring a revolver and a teapot with them. Wow. <laughs> All the essentials. <laughs> so when the Orient Express began, it wasn't quite the luxurious train ride we imagined. So it actually, it went from Paris to Constantinople, but twice the passengers had to get off and get on boats instead. Hmm. So I think the idea was they had wanted to bring protection in case there was a ruckus at the ports. Or and the, the teapots. Making tea. Making tea. <laughs> of course. <laughs> 
pass the time in your 14 hour boat ride. If you've recovered from a ruckus, what do you need? You need a nice cup of tea. That's true. Um, so the Orient Express was founded um, by the company uh, Wagon Lee, uh, Wagons Litz in English, uh, and they were f- that was founded by George Knucklemackers, who that's how you pronounce that in every language. Uh, and he is quite interesting because he decided to do these sleeper carriages when he went to the United States of America and he went to the USA because he was encouraged to go there because while in Europe, he fell in love with his cousin and his family decided that he should go to the USA to kind of get over her. So strange because falling in love with your cousin was an occupational hazard in the 19th century. It's true. Like, it, was big, it must have been an unsuitable cousin. Or I something. think it was a cousin did not like him back. Oh. But Nakamaker, so he set out that first trip to um, Constantinople and actually there wasn't a full rail link to for six years after his first Orient Express ran. But also the Orient Express, we have this idea of it being this beautiful long train and that's mm. sort of, I think the idea, because I read this fact in um, Night Trains by Andrew Martin and he says because it went on a long journey, we sort of assume it was long, but actually that first train, there were only five carriages and one of them mm. was a wagon carrying posts which helped them recoup some of their costs, <laughs> which yeah. is just yeah, not quite what you Orient imagine. Express, you think of it as being, you know, 15 carriages long yeah. Yeah. and it's got all this stuff yeah. in it. It's only five carriages, that's tiny. Yeah. 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 So many fewer suspects. <laughs> but, also, but also Agatha Christie um, used to take the Orient Express a lot because her husband, second husband was an archaeologist. They take it to go to digs. Um, but she was apparently one time between Venice and Paris was attacked by bed bugs. I shouldn't write that into the book. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, that's not what you want from your luxury train yeah, journey. Just, is it? You imagine like, you know, like really grand and lovely. Yeah. Was it Nacklemackers? Was it Pullman carriages that he was inspired by? Yes, he went to he America was. and he fell in love with them, didn't he? <laughs> Which actually <laughs> beat his, oh, him of his cousin. <laughs> Uh, but Pullman carriages were a huge deal. So they were these, yeah, this luxury way of travelling that was pioneered in America. And they also gave rise to Pullman porters. And I didn't really say so Pullman porters were the people who carried your luggage on a Pullman carriage. And George Pullman came up with the idea straight after the Civil War of only employing ex-slaves as these Pullman porters. So every single Pullman porter was black. And they ended up being really important in the civil rights movement because they formed the first union of black people, the first union that involved black people. Mm-hmm. And that allowed them to get together and to fight for their rights and things like that. But they all, when they were working on the Pullman carriages, had to be called George. So every Pullman porter what? was called George uh, after George Pullman, which some of them objected to because most of them weren't actually called George. Yeah, <laughs> you'd think the majority. <laughs> it did turn out to be. Most of them had other names. And there was a society. There was a society called the Society for the Prevention of Calling Sleeper Car Porters George. And this was actually a genuinely really important society, but it wasn't <laughs> the porters. It's, it's less, I mean, cruelty to animals and cruelty to children are surely higher up the list of prevention ofs. No. It's, no? It's, okay. <laughs> prevention of calling people George. This society was actually formed by other people who were called George. <gasps> in America so it had 31,000 members and they were saying oh, George is our name stop just randomly giving this name to train porters you can't st- I mean I don't think they should have been calling these porters George but you can't stop other people from having your name well these Georges you know they want, they didn't want it oh, like, yeah, you okay. can think that your name's a bit too common you don't want to make it more and more common Yeah, I, um, there is a phrase in fiction or things like saying leave it to George which was, I thought was a sort of 40s phrase or calling everyone George was yeah. a thing that happened. I think it comes that from, from that this? Yeah. Wow. but then you couldn't because eventually this society for the prevention of calling people George actually persuaded the Pullman company to ban it so by 1926 there had to be a little rack installed in each carriage that said the name of your porter to ensure that you didn't 
called him George because the Georges objected so much. If they were accidentally called George, not accidentally, if they that was their actual name, they were forced to not be called George. You're all called Herbert now. (laughs) And the interesting thing about Pullman, he was seen as this great entrepreneur, etc. But there was a depression in 1893, and it meant that he cut the wages of all of his staff, but. They were all staying in the town that he built and he didn't reduce the rent. So it meant that a workman might make $9.07 in a fortnight, but he would take $9 of it as rent, leaving them a paycheck of just $0.07 cents for everything else. It's not no. worth cashing, is it? It really isn't. No. It's really bad. God. So they they strike because of this. Um, and then the soldiers came in and I think quite a few people died. Uh, and then Pullman's reputation just went from hero to absolutely nothing. Which zero. is not the same. Yeah, you're right. It's zero is <laughs> the phrase. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, he became um, he became really really hated to such oh. an extent that when he was buried, his family covered his coffin in a large block of cement because they were worried people would abuse his corpse because he was hated so much. Must wow. have been very difficult for the poor pallbearers. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you're right. Um, did you know that in 1936 you could travel from England to France by train, completely by train? Still can. You still <laughs> you can do that, but it's surprising it then surprising, that you yeah. could do it. It's How not did that happen? Now. There was no tunnel. Um, no, there was no tunnel, but there were ferries. So there was this thing called the night ferry, <laughs> which took trains on board it. So it was only if you were travelling first class. There was a specially there are special trains, and they went I think from Paddington actually. And if you were in first class, your train just ran straight onto the ferry. You stayed aboard it, and then it ran straight off the ferry wow. at the other end. But nice if you were in economy that. class, you had to get off the carriage. So were there tracks? leading up onto the ferry and then at the other end there were tracks leading Mm. off so that meant they'd have to have the same gauge yeah because they have different gauges in Europe don't they or is it the it's like a universal plug when you go on holiday and you can an adapter (laughs) (laughs) the carriage might go on to another gauged yeah because the carriage sometimes lifts up you've got a flatbed truck with a different gauge and then the whole carriage is lifted up it would be a weird journey wouldn't it your carriage being lifted up and swung over waking up at the wrong point and being like where are we (laughs) Yeah, that's so cool um, so I've got a fact about modern trains, mm. which is uh, about the Queen, who, as we know, has the royal train. Mm. Um, so when she's travelling on the royal train and when she's been travelling overnight, uh, there's a special instruction that gets given out. And that is that the Queen has a bath at 7.30 in the morning. So if the train is going then, the driver is ordered to, ins- uh, the driver is ordered to avoid any bumpy bits of track <laughs> so that her bath doesn't slosh around too much. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. That's weird knowing when the Queen has a bath. I think you'd be freaked out as the train driver. Every every morning at 7.30 you'd think, oh, she's bathing now. <laughs> Don't she's, make any mistakes. She's naked 10 yards from me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird thought. It's a big train. I don't think it's only 10 metres long. <laughs> she's like in the cab, in the tub. <laughs> he puts the bath more, next to the driving coal, seat. More coal. <laughs> watching the vehicle van. Uh, just one thing I had on suitcases. So oh, this yeah. is about luggage and suitcases. And I was wondering what the history of luggages and I read that the first wheelie suitcases were in 1153 and they were used by the Knights Templar. They were invented in my lifetime. Well, you're a a very old man. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe the Knights went to the Crusades with 
It's know. trunky, supposedly. <laughs> yeah, little trunky. You don't see that, do you? You don't see them running into battle with it <laughs> with a little trolley behind them. You would leave it behind, wouldn't you? Back at the hotel. But no, I read this. It was in a Lonely Planet guide and another book, actually, and I can't find any source for it. But apparently, yeah, and they would use these wheelie suitcases <laughs> to carry their chain mail and their arms and their tools and stuff. And I guess a wheelie suitcase is really just a... Just ba- a bag on wheels, just a cart on wheels, just a bag isn't on it? Wheels. It, would, it would have to be wooden, though, wouldn't it? it would like a wooden carriage with spokes. And... Yeah, yeah. I don't know when something stops being a suitcase and starts being a carriage. Size. It's just size, we think. <laughs> Mostly size. <laughs> a very small carriage for the Knights Templar. Anyway, if anyone has an actual source for the Crusades being, people galloping into the Crusades, pulling their wheelie suitcases, it does. It just in. doesn't sound very true. It sure doesn't. Okay, on to our next fact, and that is James's fact. Okay, my fact this week is that the largest known prime number has 24,862,048 digits. When written in binary, it has 82,589,933 digits, but they are all the number one. That is unbelievable and presumably not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. Okay, so I'll quickly go through this. Uh, Take your time, please. (laughs) I'll settle then. So prime number uh, is something that has only two multiples, one in itself. So 12 is not prime because you can have three fours or two sixes, uh, but 11 is because you can't divide it by anything else apart from itself. That's lulled everyone into a false sense of security, thinking, yeah, I know that. Okay. And now... Binary. Binary is a number that's made of zeros and ones. Um, rather than writing in ones, tens and hundreds, you write in ones, twos, fours, eights, sixteens, thirty-twos, stuff like that. And so each zero or one represents a two, a four, an eight, a sixteen, etc. So the binary number one, 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 one is one plus two plus four plus eight, which is fifteen. Anyway, so the <laughs> large prime numbers that we're all finding at the moment are called Mersenne primes, and they're all in the form of two times two times two times two times two times two times two, etc., 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 minus one. And they keep looking for all these different two times two times two things and check if they're prime. And some of them are. Uh, And it also happens if you write any number that's two times two times two times two times two minus one, it can be written as a string of ones in binary. It's one, 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 one. And so this particular number, which is two to the power of 82,589,933 minus one, is a prime number. And it's also written as one, 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 one in binary. Wow. Yeah, okay. okay. That, That's almost there, That was it? well explained. That makes sense. Yeah, impressive. You should be a math teacher. So I saw this in Scientific American, this fact, which was really good. But here's a slightly more accessible maths fact from that article. And that is that the word 29, if you write it in capital letters, can be written with 29 straight line segments. That's quite nice, mm. isn't it? Sorry, if you write... So the 20... T is a is a line and a downwards line. Got it. One, Sorry, two, yeah. W is four. Three, four, five, six. And then if you add them all up, yeah. let's not do it all, but they count to 29. That's really cool. Nice. That's how you That's convince pleasing. the kids that you're a cool teacher, <laughs> stuff like that. And then you make your calculator spell boobless. And <laughs> <laughs> then you launch into the prime number stuff. Um, yeah, Mersenne primes. Is it we? So Mersenne primes, like you say, are two to the power something and then minus one. Yeah. But we now keep finding these... As the as the largest prime numbers, right? Yes. So I think it's just because that's where people are looking. Got it. Um, okay. And they're kind of easier to find because we know the kind of format that they take. So we can keep looking for all the different two to the power of 
n minus one. Yeah. We can look at the next one, the next one, the next one. Eventually, we'll find the prime number. Got it. But the gap those. gets bigger, doesn't it? Because once you're up to more than seventy-four million, the prime number theorem says only one in every fifty million numbers is prime. So you're yes. searching in quite a big gap. So, so they start clumping. Desert. So yeah. if you start at two, two is prime and three is prime. So Easy. at that stage, everything's prime. Yeah. <laughs> but then you get to four and it all goes wrong. Yeah. yeah. But then you get to five and they're prime again. And then as you go up, there's fewer and fewer as you yeah. keep going. So Marin Mersenne of Mersenne Prime fame was a monk. He was in the Minims. Uh, he was a, what was called a Minim monk. And he was also known as the post box of Europe because he was... <laughs> he ate letters. He was <laughs> large <Yeah>. and red. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he was a really crucial scientific figure in the 1600s and he was called the postbox of Europe because he was unbelievably well connected so he was like one of these uh, society ladies who brings people together so he was like really great mates with Galileo with Descartes with Pascal with Hobbes and he used to you know communicate between them all and pass their letters to each other and that was <laughs> you know, with, with, he was going around <laughs> spreading gossip so he was the postman of Europe not the postbox of Europe <laughs> yeah, you're right. um, so yeah and in that way he sort of spread ideas and then they were able to make discoveries based on each other's ideas. That's very cool. Very good. You can earn money from discovering new prime numbers, which is mm. nice. So this yeah. thing um, called GIMPs, what is it? The Great Internet Merzen Prime Search. Yeah. Uh, it means that it's a little bit of software you can install on your computer and your computer will just in the background hunt for prime numbers. But the prizes are really variable. So currently, if you find a prime number that is fewer than 100 million digits long, you only get $3,000. That's okay. still not bad for hey, doing literally nothing. It's better than a poke in the eye. But um, the first person to find uh, a prime number which had one million digits, so that's 100 times smaller, got $50,000. Oh, that's a big jump, isn't I it? I know. And when the record passed 10 million digits in 2008, the prize was $100,000. Yeah, yeah, not worth it. Not worth I it. think you should get a prize if your number is particularly pleasing, because I found an article <laughs> called The Best Prime Numbers of 2016, which I was very excited <laughs> to read. And among the nominees uh, is 314,159. Why is that um, special? It's 3.14. Yeah, it's basically oh, 100,000 times 5. Nice. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, that's that's that. I think good. I'm going to propose that as best prime number of all years, not just 2016. That is oh, a really good one. I've got a rival. Oh, okay. Mine's maybe an evil prime number. Maybe that's evil. A good one. <laughs> What's it done? This is it 6666? It's basically that, yeah, but with some stuff around it, yeah. So this is, <laughs> this is called Belfagor's Prime, and it's a palindrome, and it's also a very pleasing number. So it's one, followed by 13 zeros, 13, very unlucky number, yeah. followed by 666, followed by another 13 zeros, followed by one. Could you get unluckier? That, and that's a prime number. That's a prime number. That's really strong. It's a cool one, isn't it? That's very good. Yeah. Um, my favourite prime number is... <laughs> that's a sense you didn't think you'd say this week. We'll is this going to be a spin-off podcast? <laughs> my favourite prime. Um, my favourite is the number 524,287 mm. um, because that was proved to be prime uh, by a guy called Cataldi in 1588 and then that was the largest known prime number for 200 years wow. really? yeah until Euler came along that spoiled sport Euler um, Andy what's your favourite prime number? 17 <laughs> any reason? I like it I <laughs> genuinely find point. it pleasing yeah. and I've liked it for years as well by the way guys I didn't just make one up for this podcast <laughs> that I liked <laughs> Can I say another pie thing? Because I really like this. So yeah. um, if you want to memorize pie, you can use a sentence. So this is the first few digits of pie. Um, how I want to drink. Alcoholic, of course, after the heavy lectures involving quantum mechanics, which is 3.14159265387. And that's the number of letters in each in word. In each word. 
I'll say it again. How do I want? No, a... how I three point one. <laughs> oh yeah. How I right, want a... How I want to drink. How I want to so drink. Three point one four one five. Oh, clever. Alcoholic. Nine, of course. Two six. Two six. And you can go on forever. I mean, five goes on a long time. And oh, I was hoping great. we could. I was going to make one up for James's prime number, but uh, yeah, twenty three million digits. Can take <laughs> a while, so. We said we did a prime number um, podcast in episode ninety eight. I don't know if you remember that. I'm sure the, the listeners Vividly. at home will remember. <laughs> this was when the last really big prime number was found, uh, and we said that if you were to write it out, it would take three months. Um, but I worked out that this one, if you were to write it down, would take you nine months. Mm. Uh, and But then again, that's the 24,862,000 uh, version. If you were to write it in binary, it's 82 million digits, but they're all the number one. And so oh, yeah. I timed myself writing the number one as quickly as I could. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I could do five a second for 10 seconds. Uh-huh. Don't want to show off, but I did that quite no, easily. No, that's really actually. impressive. Right, you yeah. should put that on your Tinder profile. <laughs> <laughs> and so I worked out that even though it's a lot longer, it would only take me six months to write the binary version out, and it would take me nine months to write the... Are you factoring in the inevitable arthritis that's going to hit you in about month three? I was thinking getting halfway through and forgetting how many ones you've written. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go back and be like, uh, that's a really good fifteen million. No, but there are other good ways of doing it. So, for example, you could write with all four digit, all four limbs at once. You could put a, pe- a pencil in each hand and in each sticks. foot. Yeah. Does it yes. have to be coherently written or does it have to be just all over the place? <laughs> I think you need to be able to tell that they're ones and not just. Okay, what you could do is you could get a pencil and you could just draw a long line, just run along a very long wall, and then someone after you goes along with a rubber, just rubbing out gaps. And then turn it kind of... Yes, it's horizontal, isn't it? God, have you been drawing ones the wrong way? (laughs) (laughs) All Andy's dashes are actually ones. My my taxes are in a very bad shape. (laughs) But all these methods are going to be considered cheating in this fictional and absurd game that you've created. (laughs) And actually, in these versions, I don't sleep in any of them either. Right, yeah. The six months, there's no sleeping. (laughs) Okay, anyone got anything else? Uh, You have some illegal prime numbers. Oh, yeah? Yeah, Mm. ones that you're not allowed to say. Say one, I dare you. Rude ones. Four, eight, five, six, five. Actually, it's got 1,401 digits in it, so I'm not going to say them all. That's the only reason I'm not going to say them all. (laughs) Um, Not because you're afraid. No, I'm not afraid of the the people who make DVDs (laughs) anymore. (laughs) So this is a a decryption algorithm um, which could theoretically be used by a computer to circumvent a DVD's copy protection uh, if you know what this um, prime number is. Really? And people wanted to put it on T-shirts and stuff like that because they were so annoyed by the man telling them what prime numbers they can and can't say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I suppose DVDs aren't really used that much anymore, so... Doesn't matter. Doesn't they should. Really that's matter. one of those archaic laws, you know, that you find on the books <laughs> thousands of years later. Like, like anyone who has a black cab's allowed to urinate on the back wheel and carry a bale of hay or exactly. something. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Let's strike it from the Magna Carta. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> Okay, let's move on to our final fact, and that is Andrew Murray. My fact is that to preserve their anonymity, Michelin restaurant reviewers are advised to not tell even their parents what they do for a living. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's that's... really secretive. Yeah, that's why. Yeah. so why is it so secretive? Is that so the restaurants can't spot them? Basically, Must yeah. be, right? Yeah, because... Um, Michelin pride themselves on their anonymity. This was a this comes from a huge feature that the New Yorker wrote about this uh, about ten years ago, actually. So a lot of Michelin company executives have never met an inspector. 
Mm. Uh, you, you are kind of allowed to tell your spouse, for example, but it's it's. Not Otherwise, really they'd be a bit suspicious that you're taking them to restaurants every day. <laughs> How are we affording this? <laughs> you don't have a job. <laughs> but yet you eat it. <laughs> and they do eat out a lot. Yeah, they have to dine out two hundred days a year. Oh, um, didn't. They have to. Well, they're driving in between places, and they have to fill out reports for hours and hours a day about these yeah. places. They have to eat the maximum number of courses offered. They can't skip pudding really? ever. Um, they have to eat everything on their plate. What? <laughs> it's like, no. Yes, true. Because they have to judge, you know, whether the the seared whatever. You're is not having exactly pudding until right. you've eaten your vegetables. <laughs> yeah, it's basically like being a child. <laughs> Wait, but they don't have to eat all of everything, surely. One is they? If they've had one pea, it's not like the last. You pea don't is have to have be... all the peas. Yeah, if, if the peas are awful. The article says they have to eat everything on their plate. That's true, actually, <laughs> because what happens if yeah. one of the peas is off? Yeah. The but people the rest who read are this review, they want to know that, don't they? But if they also, if they bring you 500 peas and you think there's too many peas, you can't just have one pea and say, "Oh yeah, the peas are great." You should make a note. They bring too many peas. Um, I think the reviews are normally more complex than knowing too many peas. Why do they keep sending me to Little Shirts? <laughs> We're never going to give them a star guy. <laughs> well, I like that um, Mr. Michelin is sort of, we think of it as sort of fine dining, but it wasn't meant to mean that. It was meant to mean one star was very good cooking, two was exceptional, worth a detour, and three was exceptional, worth a special journey. It was supposed to be worth how much mm. it was worth making the trip. So it could have been, yeah. if there's a really good little chef. So yeah. two is worth a detour. So yeah. basically a one Michelin star restaurant is not worth making a detour yeah. to go if to. Yeah. If you you're passing. Not, if you only go to a one Michelin star restaurant if you're walking past the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're staying next door. That's really yeah. funny. I was reading about um, restaurants reviewers um, in newspapers which is a similar kind of thing mm. isn't it um, there's a famous one whose name is Frank Bruni uh, who I really like because his name is the plural of Frank Bruno <laughs> 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 and he says that um, he always wears a wig and fake mustaches um, but the problem was that one of his books his early books had his face on the cover mm. and then oh. the dust jacket got put on the internet but you think you wouldn't put your face on the cover of your own book would no, you? No you can't complain about your book cover appearing <laughs> on the internet um, <laughs> Maybe he didn't know that he was going to be an anonymous yeah. restaurant reviewer Maybe it's a different book yeah, so The UK doesn't have many uh, anonymous reviewers there's Marina O'Loughlin who writes for the Sunday Times mm. and she always covers her face with a plate uh, mm. not, when she, away. not when she dines at the restaurant <laughs> Oh, your peas are in your lap, Marina. <laughs> <laughs> but and she says it's a real struggle because obviously it's quite a small, you know, haute cuisine food scene. Yeah. And she also she's done interviews saying my husband is incapable of going out for dinner with me without bellowing Marina at the top of his voice. Oh my God. <laughs> but I have read about people who, when they're dining by themselves, like to take a notebook because it sort of freaks people out. As so if you go in and sit there with your notepad and a pen. Excellent. <laughs> everyone's like. Well, because so Michelin reviews aren't allowed, are they? They're not allowed to take notes because, yeah, it gives the game away. Great bluff to pretend that you're not a Michelin. Well, that's what I always do. I go to Michelin star restaurants and I don't take a notepad. (laughs) (laughs) And I just think, as soon as they see that, they think I'm a reviewer. (laughs) They're sent into a panic every single customer. (laughs) It's like being a really low stakes spy, isn't it? It's like if you're if you're a coward but you want to be a spy, you should be one of these people. stressful there's one one i really like ruth reichel i think that's how you say her name and um she goes to enormous lengths so she was the reviewer for the new york times as well and she started wearing disguises because she realized that restaurants were 
offering rewards of up to $1,500 for people who could spot her uh, so that they would know if she was wow. going. And so she created all these alter egos and she like really lives the part. So she said my f- her first alter ego was <laughs> a mousy woman called Molly Hollis. Uh, she was a woman who had 30 years and 40 pounds on the real me, I said Rachel. So she probably dressed it up. And then she turned into Chloe, a brazen blonde who flirted with waiters and then sweet, earthy, red-headed Brenda. And then <laughs> after a time, she was followed by frumpy old Betty. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. But I think the thing about being um, spies is really interesting. So they're obviously spies aren't allowed to tell people what they do for a living. And there was a former CIA agent uh, called Douglas Lang who did an AMA on Reddit. And he said he told his family he was a low-level salesman because he doesn't tend to invite more questions. But when he got sent to Afghanistan, he told his family he's going to Hawaii because he thought it was far enough away. Yeah. But they kept trying to visit him. And he was like, uh, yeah, we can't do that. But the be- That's the same thing as the restaurant guy. It's like, why are we going to these casinos every night? <laughs> yeah, why are we always here? Yeah. But the best bit I read about the spy thing is that there's not really a way of testing who's psychologically sort of good to be a spy and what sort of effect keeping the secrets has on you because there aren't enough spies who've come out about being a spy who will volunteer for your survey. And there was a paper in the um, Journal of the Association of Former Intelligence Officers, which I would love to read, about, yeah, this problem that you can't study the spies because it's all secrets. So we don't really know what impact creating a false identity has for the spies and presumably for the restaurant critics as well. Um, I read the what I think is the first restaurant review of all time Ooh, in, wow. from 1859. <laughs> what in the, the hell <laughs> was that I just experienced? <laughs> <laughs> It was like having a meal at home, but I was in someone else's building. Yes. Uh, no, it was better than that, actually. Was, if you can believe it. It was written in 1859. It's really long. Um, and actually, it's a review of lots of restaurants. They went to about 10 oh, different yeah. restaurants. A lot of it is taken up. Like the first full page of the paper is taken up with the person saying how bizarre it is that the editor sent them on this mission in the first place. <laughs> Stupid idea that will never catch on. Is it, exactly. is it English or is it French or is it? It's um, New York Times American oh, okay. in New York. Oh, right. um, and it's so good, actually. It really it starts the tradition from the start of the A.A. Gill style great reviewing. So um, it describes one of the restaurants he goes into. He says, you walk in, there's a pervading atmosphere of gravy, of which you become more sensible. Was <laughs> <laughs> he had a little chef? <laughs> he said, a pervading atmosphere of gravy, of which you become more sensible as you penetrate further into the crowded room. A guest has no sooner seated himself than a plate is flung at him by an irritated and perspiring <laughs> Waiter. <laughs> That's good. It's so good. I want to go to this restaurant. Um, <laughs> you like a perspiring waiter. The jerking of the plate at customers is closely followed up by a similar performance with the knife and fork. And wow. he's, he's very strong on um, waiters' outfits. That seems to be the thing that this reviewer most cares about. He says, I prefer the man who is so good as to bring me what I'm about to eat should not appear in soiled garments. <laughs> I think that's fair enough, isn't it? Where were the standards? <laughs> like, oh, that too is my bare minimum. <laughs> <laughs> Another waiter shat himself. <laughs> but the food was delicious. You can't judge by the shitting himself level of the waiter. It would put you off a bit. Um, one of the first um, professional restaurant critics was um, Grimaud de la Reniere, uh, who was French. And <laughs> surprises. Um, he became a um, gourmand because something that happened in an early age, he, his parents were away and his father returned from wherever they were to find a pig dressed up and presiding at his dinner table. What? <laughs> and the story made the rounds in Paris, it became quite famous, and so the family disinherited him <laughs> and sent him to an abbey. 
<laughs> close to Nancy, where um, he became friends with um, the abbot, and the abbot taught him the art of good eating, and then eventually he became a restaurant critic. And did he learn that the art of good eating does not involve dressing up a pig <laughs> sitting at your dinner table? But you're a guy who cared about the waiter's outfits would have loved this. There was a pig in the most immaculate of dress. Yeah. He, <laughs> he did not that. shit himself. <laughs> I read about him, yeah. and he was really cool, De La Reynier, and he created this jury. So the first restaurant critic... Uh, was there were 17 of him because it was him and 16 buddies prime number right my fave (laughs) (laughs) and they met every week to taste food but obviously you couldn't have 17 people going to the same restaurant as a critic because it would definitely be pretty obvious but they met also it's so hard to book a table for that (laughs) many people yeah it's true but they met every week at the same place and the restaurants sent their food to them no yeah that's such a good idea it's weird isn't it so Yeah. yeah Although I would have thought the food quality might degrade in transit. It's delivery, right. isn't it? It is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it turns yeah. up in boxes. And he also gave his own funeral to see who would come. Really? Oh, Once. Before he, he was dead. Before he was dead, yes. yeah, yeah. And then he rose from the dead halfway through. Oh. Brilliant. He's a dramatic amazing. guy. Yeah. Really fun. Um, I looked a bit more into the history of Michelin. So when they started doing the guides, there were only 3,000 cars in France. So it was a bit more of a. Oh, yeah. It wasn't a thing everybody had. And so I didn't realize that the Michelin man, you know, the guy made out of tires, was really posh when he first came out to appeal to these like upper classes. <laughs> so he had a monocle, a cigar, cufflinks, and a signet ring. <laughs> and then as cars became more for everyone, they had to like tone him down That's a bit. That's really That's funny. That's really good. Well, this is because I don't think people. People know the reason that the Michelin stars came about. Really, the mm. reason the Michelin guy came about was because they made tires and they wanted to encourage people to use their tires by driving to lots of restaurants. So they wore them out so that they would have to buy new tires, which does seem like a convoluted way of selling more tires. <laughs> Should we just put cold tires the tires? Nah. <laughs> oh, but yeah. that must be why he's made of white tires. Because we've said tires used to be white. Tires yeah. used to be white. Yeah. They they actually coloured him black for a brief period when tires became black with asphalt. But because it was bad for printing, uh, it didn't really work. Right. So they made him white again. Wow. But do you know what he's called? His he has a name which is Bibendum, and nice. his 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 name means now is the time for drinking or there's drinking to be done. <laughs> but and, not driving. Well, no, that's not, exactly. And he was always he was initially known as the road drunkard. That is his name, <laughs> genuinely. Um, and basically, the, the the posters for him originally showed him as as Anne says with you know with a monocle and with champagne and everything. But he was drinking a big glass, and the glass was full of nails and broken glass and all this horrible stuff. And the idea behind the poster is that Michelin tires drink up obstacles without puncturing. So right. he can soak up all this broken glass and all these nails, and he God. won't deflate. He'll be fine. That's not an easy message to get from that image, <laughs> no, is it? I think- <laughs> It's a weird image. Also, it's it's strange for something that, you know, is associated with high quality food and drink to sort of be recommending a glass <laughs> filled with crap. And that does show that they didn't really adapt the original logo because it was originally designed for a beer company, wasn't it? And I think it was rejected. The guy who oh, drew the Michelin Man Bibendum, that's why he was called that and why he was drinking. But what was he? Why was, was he, he made s- of tires? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That they did adjust it to make him make tires. <laughs> He's a portly man. They thought, oh, we'll add some tires yeah. in for this. You could see why the beer company rejected it, couldn't you? <laughs>
The only reason why he is made of tyres? Just thought it would work. But Distinctive. He, he used to do live gigs, the Michelin Man. So what? this what? was in 1898, he had his first ever live gig, which is Andre Michelin, one of the brothers behind mm. the company. He hired a stall at a Paris cycle show. He set up a big cardboard cutout of the Michelin Man. And then he hired a cabaret comedian to crouch behind it. <laughs> and provide banter with the audience. <laughs> That's brilliant. And he was um, apparently so good and so, drew such a massive crowd that yeah. rival stallholders started pushing and shoving and getting angry because they were, he was taking all their custom That's and they had brilliant. to call the police. Wow. Yeah. He was a comedian. Yeah. A big, hard-drinking comedian. <laughs> <laughs> Nails swilling, cufflink wearing. You two had a lot in common. <laughs> <laughs> I think we would get along. Okay, that's all of our facts for this week. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to get in touch with any of us, you can find these guys on their Twitter feed. So Anne is on... At Miller underscore Anne. Andy's on... At Andrew Hunter M. James is on... At James Harkin. And you can email me on podcast at qi.com or you can listen to any of our old episodes or get tickets for our tour if you go to nosuchthingasafish.com. That is all from us this week. We'll be back again next week with another episode. Goodbye. 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 Can't say goodbye. Really nailed it that time. <laughs> <laughs>